You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 35. I know Andrew just read that for us, but we're going to be working our way through it, and it would be good for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible or you'd like to follow along, maybe in uh, something um, physical, if you brought just your phone with you, uh, the Bible's in front of you. You can turn to page 30, but we would encourage you to follow along with us. I, I don't know if you know this, and you, hopefully by the end of our time together, you will realize that the songs that we've been singing have already pretty much told us the reality and the truths that are, are really in these verses that we're going to study. We've been talking in Genesis all about God's faithfulness. We've been looking at his promises and seeing him be a God who continues to fulfill his promises. And those are promises that are extended to us today. And so we get to likewise, like Jacob and his family, live in the reality of God and those promises. So this morning as we start out, I just want to ask you a simple question. It's just meant to get us thinking. And that question is just simply, how is your soul this morning? How is your soul? As a former pastor would ask this question, instead of simply asking, how are you doing? It's so easy for us to just kind of throw that off. I'm doing well. I'm doing fine. Man, you ask, how is your soul? And all of a sudden, we have to stop and we have to evaluate. Well, church, I want you to think on that for just a moment. And as we're thinking on how it is that our souls are doing this morning, I want to just quickly go ahead and, and, and preface our text for this morning. I'll let you know that our passage today is going to actually conclude a pretty major section of the book of Genesis. And so after, this will be the last sermon in Genesis for, for the remainder of this year as we move into a season of Advent. And we come back in January, we pick up the final section of the book of Genesis. And so as we're, we're thinking through what today's passage is going to be, as you're still thinking about how it is that your soul and, and what it's like and, and what status it's in, I want you to know from our text this morning really quickly that and this is, our, this is our take, right? This is what God is teaching us and, and what we're supposed to know from. And, and basically, God calls Jacob, right? God calls Jacob away from his stained past and again into his presence. It's marking an end of one era. It's marking the expectation of another, that one of expectation full of God's faithfulness, both in the past era and in the one to come. And church, for you and for, for me this morning, our, our takeaway, our, what we want to know is that no matter how checkered your past is, just like whether it's like Jacob's or not, but just like Jacob, we are called to rightly worship God and experience his blessings forever. No matter your background, you are called to worship God and experience his blessings forever. As you're thinking through where you are right now, the reality is a room this size, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like your life's kind of messed up, right? We're, we're moving, as Pastor Cody said, into a season of Thanksgiving, which comes into Christmas, and then we get to the end of the year, and we all start doing all this evaluation for how our, we set out in 2023 and how our life would look. And for some of us, if we look back, we're like, it's kind of not what I expected. It's kind of messed up. If that's you this morning, I just want you to know that this passage is for you. Or maybe you're here, you're like, well, I don't know if my life's messed up, but I sure do feel beat down over and over again by my continual failing to live up to who God's called me to be. 
If that's you this morning, I want you to know and I want you to see the grace of God in our text this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know, it's kind of going okay. And first of all, great, that's wonderful. My encouragement, my challenge to you would be to make sure that as we're measuring what you consider success and, and happiness and joy, let's make sure that those things are, are placed into the right buckets, that our focus is toward the right person and, and not to the things of this world. But either way, for you, wherever you are today, struggling in sin, in a season of adversity, or maybe everything's going pretty well, this story has something for you today. The reality is, as we think through, as you meet people, right, getting to know most of you, as you meet someone at work, as you meet someone in your neighborhood, I think if we could boil it down, there would be a common thread that all of us would love to have and say that we have lived, at the end of our life, a very full and successful life. I think that's fair to say. But I think what's also fair to say is that long-term success never happens by accident. Long-term success never happens by accident. Rather, it comes from when our lives are rightly ordered. Think about it. If you're training to be an Olympic gymnast, everything in your life, your schedule, what you eat, what you do, the training you do, all is aimed towards one thing. You've ordered your life towards one goal. So this morning, I think if our goal is to live a full and successful life, as God would call it, then we have to live a life that is rightly ordered. And so this morning, we're going to look at three ways in which our lives can be rightly ordered from our text this morning. And so the first one is that we are to give God appropriate worship. That's the first thing we've got to do is give God appropriate worship. And I use the word appropriate because we can desire to come to God and worship him however we see fit. But the reality is that's not how it works. We don't get to come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms. We don't get to worship God however we desire to see and call what is worship, but what God declares and desires for us to worship him. And so there are four elements to appropriate worship of God from our text this morning. God's grace, his instruction, the exclusivity of our worship, and then our response out of those things. So let's look quickly at God's grace Look at verse one. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel, settle there and build an altar. Four imperatives. That's how he starts the chapter. But remember back to Genesis chapter 28, if you've been with us for a while. If not, Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He's fearful for his life. God meets him one night in Bethel. And Jacob in verse 20 makes a vow to the Lord. If God would be with me, if God would watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides Uh, He provides me with food to eat and clothes to wear. And if I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. That's the vow he makes. But God comes to him in verse 1, having to remind Jacob to complete what he promised 20 plus years ago. In fact, back in Genesis 31, he told him the same thing. He said, leave Laban, go back. But what we saw the last couple weeks is Jacob didn't actually go all the way back. He, didn't, he stopped short of going where God had called him to go. Jacob messed up once again. And, but I want you to not, before we even get into the instruction of God, before we get into the rest of the story, I don't want you to miss the grace that is embedded in, Genesis, uh, in, in this verse 1. If you've been with us, you've been tracking Jacob's life. It's not been that great. 
right? He's swindled his own brother out of his birthright. He's deceived his own father into giving him the blessing that was meant for his brother. Time and again, he's failed to be the man that God has called him to be. And let me be honest, if I'm dealing with Jacob, man, I'd be finished with him. I mean, Jacob is in the third line, the third generation of God's promise to bless him and then the entire world through him. God's appeared to him multiple times. He's instructed him on how he should live. And yet Jacob keeps messing up. I mean, Jacob has blown through strikes one, two, and three. In fact, I would say Jacob has struck out so many times he could fill up a nine-inning baseball game all by himself. But God comes to him in verse one. In fact, we even shorten that, but God comes to him in verse 1. But God. It's a phrase that should stick out to you if you are students of the Bible. Because even aren't these two words even the beginning for us to understand the very grace of God? This phrasing this, it for, it appears in various forms hundreds of times throughout the Bible, but let me take you quickly to Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul writes and says, You, us, by the way, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2, you walked according to the ways of the world. Verse 3, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by very nature children under wrath. That's what it says. But then verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. The Bible teaches us that when God extends his grace to you, it is a forever grace. No matter how many times Jacob messed up, no matter how many times that you have messed up, no matter how many times you fall back into sin that you previously fled from, no matter how many times Satan tells you that you are not worthy of God's love, if you are in Christ, God's grace abounds to you forever. And so we see here in verse 1, God once again coming alongside Jacob, even in his failure that we looked at last week in, verse, in chapter 34, calling him into a fuller and deeper walk with him. So the first element of appropriate worship is that it's based in God's grace. Now, secondly, we look at God's instruction. Go back to chapter one. Now we are verse one. Now we look at these four imperatives because understanding God's grace alone doesn't actually bring appropriate worship. We need to know how that we are to engage this great God. So these four imperatives, get up, go to Bethel, settle, and build an altar. That word get up, your, your Bibles may translate it, arise or wake up. Jacob needed to be jolted. Jacob was, was passive. Jacob was just comfortable in where he was, although where he was was not in a right relationship with God. Last chapter, we saw God, Jacob had abdicated his responsibility to lead, to care, to protect his own family. He wasn't where or who God called him to be. And so God says, wake up from your slumber. He says, go to Bethel. Again, Jacob had gotten close to where God had called him to be. But here's the problem with being close to where God called you to be. You might as well be a thousand miles away. There's no such thing as being close to where God called you to be. We're either obedient children or we're not. 
And Jacob, unfortunately, even though he was only potentially 15 miles from where God wanted him, wasn't where he needed to be. And we saw the effects of that last week. See, Jacob wanted all the blessings of the Lord, but he wanted to do it on his own terms. What Jacob needed to learn and what we have to remember is we don't get to come to God on our terms, but on his terms. Appropriate worship is not a worship that manipulates God into being or doing what we want him to be. Appropriate worship is seeing God for who he is and being where he has called us to be. Which the third one says, settle there, right? Jacob has been wandering around. Jacob's been moving. And God has said, no, no, my, 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 my promise to your grandfather Abraham and to your father Isaac was that you would be here in Canaan. That your family would settle here. And for 30 years, potentially, up to 30 years, he's been outside of that. Mostly due to his own sinfulness. And lastly, God says, build an altar. Appropriate worship entails setting up a place where God's mercy can be on display. Now, we don't see, and the law is not given until the book of Exodus, but we know God's people had already had an understanding of sacrifices to the Lord in a place of worship. For you and I, we understand that in order to rightly worship the Lord, we have to ourselves be an altar where we are, we are laying down our lives in worship of God alone. So when you take all of God's instruction together, we get Jacob was instructed on how to rightly worship God. He had to engage God on God's terms, not his own. And God's terms required sacrifice and God's terms required submission. Appropriate worship requires sacrifice and submission. Neither of those terms sit very well with us often in our natural state. And yet that is who God, that's what God instructs for us. If we are going to rightly give God appropriate worship, then we have to understand that we have to engage God on his terms, not as we see fit. But those things, God's grace and how God desires to be engaged is also leads us to the third point of exclusive worship. God is not a God who is willing to be worshiped alongside of. God is not a God who is willing for you to sit there and go, well, I want this, but I kind of want to throw in a little bit of Jesus on top of it. And then hopefully I can have all of this together. We don't have recorded for us in verse 1, but we do see the effects of it in verses 2 and 3. Jacob understood, and all of the book of Genesis has really been screaming that for us, what will later become the first, of the ten, first two of the Ten Commandments. No gods before me, no idols to worship in my place. The worship of the Lord must be exclusive. Many people in Jacob's day obviously had idols, right? That's why he has to tell them in verses 2 and 3 to get rid of them. But we're no different. We live in a culture, we live in a time where it's so easy for us to add things on, to be part of the people of God over here and then over here still have the other things that I've placed my hope in, that I've placed my, my dependence on, that I've placed my desires and my affections on other than God. So Jacob tells his family to get rid of these foreign gods, to purify yourself. Our God is a God who will not be worshiped alongside of. He has to be your only God or he is not God to you at all. And then fourthly, we have to do something with this. 
It's not enough that these truths be known. It's not enough for you to agree in principle that these things are right, that God's grace is evident, that that you have to engage God on his terms. And you can know all of this. And it means nothing if we don't respond rightly. And the first way we are to respond rightly is through repentance. Look at what Jacob's family did in verses 4 and 6. His family gave all of their foreign gods and their earrings, which most likely were earrings that would have been attached to these idols. And Jacob took them and he hid them under the oak near Shechem. He buried them. When we, when we talk about the word repentance, it's a word we can use a lot in church, but if we understand truly what it means, it means you are, you are turning away from, you are abandoning something and turning towards something else. Jacob has instructed them to abandon their hope and the, and the trust they have in those idols and to leave them behind. Literally, he takes them, he buries them, and then they leave in verse 6. That's what it means to repent of our sins. The proper response for idol is to not just put them in another room on a shelf that we can't see. Because we all know what's going to happen if that's what we do. We know that the moment that we're tempted in sin, it's going to be so easy to walk into that room, open that cabinet, and pull out whatever it is, figuratively speaking, that thing that causes you to sin. That thing that you have put hope in, that thing that you have an affection for greater than the Lord. No, no, no. In effect, what, what, what Jacob did is he took them and he buried them. He said, those are dead to us. And then they left the region. If there are idols in your life, whatever those may be, don't take your sin lightly before God. Repentance means a true turning away. It's not a, it's not a here's my sin, and I'm going to turn over here so I can still kind of see it. No, it's I'm turning that way, and I'm no longer looking for this. So repentance meant burying and walking away. So our first right response in order to worship God as he desires is repentance. But secondly, is purification. Look at what Jacob tells his, his family and, and those who are with him. He says, purify yourselves and change your clothes. Not only is there a need for repentance, because look, God is holy. God is perfect. You and I are not holy and we are not perfect. And we cannot go before that God who is holy and perfect in our current stat- status, which is our filth, our stain of sin. We are not right to go before God. We need to be purified. So he says, purify yourselves, change your clothes. Here's the problem. See, when they repented of their sin, they got away their idols, they left the area. The problem is when they're walking into Bethel, they still smell like their sin. The stench of their sin was still on them. They needed to be made clean. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the people of God were given instructions that they may give uh, uh, re- sacrifices over and over and over again for their sin. They needed something to die in their place to cover their sin. The problem, of course, with that is it was a temporary covering. And then every time you messed up, you're back to giving another sacrifice. And it was a pointer to God's people that there was at some point needed someone to come and to actually take away their sin, not just temporarily cover it. In the same way, because God is holy and we are not, 
We don't need just a little bit of a bath. We don't need just to change some simple clothes and that makes us right before God. The key in, in this idea was that they were changing their clothes right then for that moment. They were temporarily going to be okay to worship the Lord until the next time. And God's people in, in the Old Testament also had these rules and these laws that if you had come in contact with something unclean or you yourself became unclean, you went through these ritualistic washings so that you could rightly enter God's presence again. But guess what happened the next time and the next time and the next time and something needed to come and actually take away that stench of sin. There was a commercial several years ago, a Febreze commercial. There, were, there was this guy sitting in his room playing video games. He had his friend over there with him and he said, hey, his room stunk, but he said he couldn't smell it. He had become nose blind is what they said. But man, his mom walks in the room and she can absolutely smell how awful it is. In fact, they changed all of his furniture and all of his curtains to these old, nasty, sweaty socks because that's what it smelled like. And the whole idea of this commercial was then she, he could take this uh, spray and he could spray it all over the nasty smelling stuff. And the claim by the commercial was it didn't just temporarily cover it like the other fragrances would do, but they would actually remove the stench. Look, I'm not here to, to make a claim on whether or not that product in that commercial does what it says it's going to do. But it does highlight the fact that, that just because of our repentance, we can still smell like the stench of our sin. And so we need to purify ourselves so we can enter God's presence. So we need to repent and we need to purify ourselves. Here's the only problem with that. When you're the one stinky in sin, you can't do anything about your own stench. You can't purify yourself. In the same way the Israelites couldn't make their sin go away, they couldn't, they couldn't do enough to take it away, they needed one to come and do it. So are we. We need one to come and to remove the stench of our sin. That's what's so great about the gospel, right? We talk about Jesus coming and he died on the cross and he paid for your sins. But if that's all he did, then you're still just kind of stuck with, okay, well, I'm no longer guilty, I'm just sitting here. But instead, he gives you his own righteousness. You are now declared sons and daughters of the king. God accepts you into his presence as pure, washed white as snow, sons and daughters. So a key to, to right worship of God, a right response is both, yes, understanding God's grace for you. is to repent of your sins, but also to recognize and be thankful for God's mercy and the grace he has extended in purifying your lives. And then the last part of our response to God is that we may appropriately worship is that we are to move forward in his promises. We're to move forward. What good is it if he forgives us? What good if he cleans us up and then we continue to live apart from his promises? That's what Jacob's been doing for the last 30 years. God has promised him a life He's promised to bless him and the entire world through him if he is here, but he has lived over here outside of God's promises for a long time. So what good does it do if we're not living in the promises of God? Each week, if you've been here at Covenant Hope for a while, each week when we leave, we say that we want you to go with the hope of the gospel. And I know some of you think it's just simply a cool tagline because it's in the, the word hope is in the name of our church. It's not what it's meant for. It's meant to be a call for all of us that when we leave this building, that our worship of the Lord will continue into every facet of your lives. 
Like, what good is it if you come to church on Sunday morning and for an hour or so, we sit here, we acknowledge God's grace, we, we understand his call for exclusive worship, we sing songs only to him, we repent of our sins, and then we leave here and, and like none of that even happened. Was that even genuine worship at all? God made promises to Abraham. Made the same promises to Isaac. Now he makes them here to Jacob and he intended for them to trust him to fulfill those promises as they live out the implications of those promises. Verse 5, we see that Jacob, who was fearful in chapter 34, is now walking and going to Bethel. And God is taking care of the fear that he had because he's letting all the nations around them not mess with them at all. In verse 7, they build, Jacob builds an altar to God. Because he built an altar in a place that God he had originally uh, earlier encountered the Lord. So he sets up an altar of worship. We'll come back to verse 8. But verses 9 through 15 show us a man that God has patiently prepared to take the baton from his own father Isaac. To now be the patriarch of God's people. And so if you look over verses 9 through 15 quickly, I want to highlight just a few things in relation to Jacob walking forward in God's promises. God appeared to him again, and he again names him Israel like he did back in chapter 32. Because regardless of his failures, God reminds him of who God is making him to be. Not who Jacob is on his own, but who God is making him to be. And God tells Jacob like he did to Abraham that he, that he is God Almighty. He's not just making up a cool name. He's telling Jacob, God, I'm the God who is able to do all that I've said I'm going to do. And like Abraham, Jacob receives the promise of seed and land. And yet he expounds on it because he says, actually, Jacob, not only are you going to have a great nation come from you, kings are going to descend from you. So after Jacob encounters God, what does he do? He sets up a marker and he worships. Man, it's been a long up and down process for Jacob over these 30 years or so. And yet God's faithful to his promises. And they're now starting to take root in Jacob's life. And so for the remainder of Jacob's life, he's remaining inside of those promises. Not perfectly, but remaining inside the promises of God moving forward. So how do we live a rightly ordered life? Step one is we have to give God appropriate worship. But step two, if it's going to be rightly ordered... It means that we're going to have to see God's faithfulness even in times of adversity. Look at the next section, really the remaining uh, part of the chapter of 35, including verse 8 as well. I'll be honest, it's kind of a mixed bag for Jacob and his family. I mean, in verse 8, in verse 18, in verse 29, there's three deaths of people close to him. First, Deborah, which was his mom's nurse that was sent with her when, when his dad married his mom. Which probably also indicates that his own mom at this point has passed away, even though her death is not recorded in the Bible. And then in verses 16 through 20, we have recorded Jacob's 12th son being born. The number 12 in the Bible is this wonderful perfection number. And so we, we have this birth of this 12th son. How awesome and amazing that is. And yet mixed with that is he loses his beloved Rachel as she dies because of complications from childbirth. Look, I've never walked through that pain and that struggle. On the one hand, you have a new child that is born and you, the joy that that would bring. And yet on the other hand, you lose someone dear at the same time. And yet I know there's people in this room that know that way, way better than I do. 
So Rachel names her son Ben-Anoi, son of my sorrow. And yet Jacob renames him Benjamin, meaning son of my right hand. And so you see that tension of sorrow and strength all mixed together in Jacob's life. And then lastly, of course, at the end of the chapters, Andrew read, Jacob makes it all the way back home in time to be with his father before he passes. But even still, by the end of our chapter, his father's passed away. There's a sign of completion of the end of a generation. But not only do these verses contain death, now you look at verse 22 and it contains another disturbing incident, this time involving his oldest son, Reuben. Reuben goes in and sleeps with his father's concubine. And Jacob heard about it, although he's called Israel. And most of the commentators are like, what, what in the world's going on there? But it was a, most likely a, an e, a Near East pagan procedure in which the son was trying to, 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 to take over the clan. It was his way of trying to supersede his own father by taking over the clan. But the fact that our verse here uses Jacob's name Israel twice is to highlight the fact that what Reuben did didn't just simply, was not just an egregious uh, response and, and transgression against his father, but against God himself and the one that he had set up. And so while we don't have recorded Jacob's response to his son here, isn't it kind of weird? He just kind of says it and then moves on. And so we're left wondering, is Jacob doing the same thing he just did in chapter 34 where he's abdicating his responsibility? I don't know. But I do know by the time we get to chapter 49, with a cross-reference over in 1 Chronicles 5, we'll see how this act not only causes Reuben to lose his birthright, he even loses his portion of the land inheritance. And so then lastly, the writer puts all of Jacob's 12 children together for the first time. And what a mixed bag. Sorrow, death, been sinned against, birth of a child, look at my 12 sons. I mean, that's a really mixed bag. What are we supposed to do with that? Let me be honest. You would think after the first few verses, man, blessings are awaiting Jacob. And yet the rest of chapter 35 doesn't look all that full of blessings. And so really quickly, I think just three things we can take from that. First and foremost, God never promised Jacob an easy life. Never promised him that. He did promise him he would be with him through all of it. And the same is true for us. In fact, Jesus actually said that if you, are, if you are mine, then because they hated me, they're going to hate you. You will be rejected because of Christ. But our hope isn't in whether or not people accept us or love us. It's in the fact that we have been promised God himself with us through all of it. But secondly, the reality is sometimes we get to see God's work in and amidst the adversity that we're walking through. Jacob got to see the birth of his child, even though he was experiencing loss all at the same time. You and I probably can point back to things in our lives in which in the moment we got to see what God was doing even though it was a difficult time. We're not promised to always see the blessings, but we are promised that we have a God that will walk through them with us in these hard times. Which lastly just means, let's be real, there are times in which you are not going to get to see all that God is up to even in the midst of your hard, the hard and difficult times. Sometimes we don't get to see what the Lord's up to. Jacob in the moment didn't have the perspective that we have now. He didn't see all that God was doing. He didn't see how God was completing these, these important uh, key elements in redemptive history. 
Man, God wanted Jacob back in, in his presence full time, but Jacob was living out here. If he hadn't have had the hardships, would he have come back? I don't know. But sometimes the Lord does allow pain so that we can be taught. Sometimes he loves us enough to let us walk through hard things because he has great plans for us. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully. He said, pain insists on being attended to. See, God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks to us in our consciousness but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse or to wake up or to stir a deaf world. Sometimes God allows pain because he loves us enough to stir us back to him. Look, Jacob probably didn't understand all of that at the time. And we probably don't understand all that we're walking through at the same time either. But what God was doing was he was setting up Jacob as the new patriarch. Because he had great plans for him and his children to now bring forth not just the Messiah, but to bless the entire world through them. And I don't know if you've been keeping track here, but Reuben in this chapter has already lost his right to be the line in which the Messiah would come. Last week we had Simeon and Levi, that was number two and three, also lost their right to be the one the Messiah would come from. And then you have the fourth line of Judah. And what Jacob could not have understood at the time is that God's plan all along was that the Messiah would come through this fourth line. So even in the midst of heartache and even in the midst of sin, God had a plan that he was working out to bring the Messiah in the way he had planned all the way from the beginning. And so when we're walking closer to the Lord, when we're rendering him appropriate worship, we aren't guaranteed that life's going to just work out and be easy for us. But what Jacob was finally learning and what I hope that we are learning is that our God who extended grace to us is with us forever in all of it. And so as we seek to live a rightly ordered life, one that is full and successful by God's standards, sometimes we need to start to learn and see God's faithfulness even in our adversity. And then lastly, we're going to measure a blessed life not by apparent successes. Now, we had Andrew read just chapter 35, and so if you weren't aware, we're actually going all the way through chapter 36 in the first verse of chapter 37, and I feel like there's some people right now that are super anxious because we've been here going here for a little bit. Let me just assure you, we're going to move quickly here, but we don't want to leave this alone. What's happening here is, is chapter 36 kind of rounds out Esau, Jacob's brother's lineage, and then it's finished. I mean, the people of Esau will continue to go on, and we'll read about them in other times on the road, but, but Esau's direct lineage is wrapped up here. So I just want to give you a few, uh, quickly just a few points. I went and counted, and there's about 70 people mentioned in this chapter that are either related to, descended from, or partnered with Esau. Now, I gave you a number, so somebody's out there trying to count them all now. And look, I may have gotten a couple wrong, because there's multi-generations going on here, and son of this person who's the son of this person, but I count about 70 people. Lots of them are named chiefs or tribal leaders, some of them becoming kings of larger areas. Esau himself became a father of 14 tribes. From a human perspective, Esau had everything. He had so much material wealth that he had to move away from Jacob into the land of Seir because they couldn't live that close together. He had a huge family. He had successful kids. They all took leadership courses and apparently became leaders of areas. He moved into a region that wasn't his own but became the most important family there. 
If we stripped Esau's name out of this, we'd say, who wouldn't want this life? I've got plenty to care for my family. I've got lots of kids who love me and have done all the right things, gone all the right schools to learn how to be the best leaders possible. I'm important. I've known in where I live and where I work. Who wouldn't want that life? But interesting, verse 37, or chapter 37, verse 1, which is kind of a swing verse, shifts the focus back to Jacob and his 12 children. And his 12 children at this point have done basically nothing good. Nothing of any value. Nothing of anything to write down. Esau's got it all. Jacob doesn't have much of anything at this point. In terms of lineage, in terms of all of the greatness that Esau can claim. And yet God is going to choose to work through Jacob. Because God doesn't measure success in the way we measure success. In fact, the Edomites, the ones that will come from, from Esau, were going to continue to be a thorn in the side of God's people for many, many generations until God eventually wipes them off the face of the earth. Esau had it all for just a little while. But when our successes are based on, li- uh, on our lives and activities that take us away from God's love, then the Bible teaches us that only despair and futility await us. So when we think about a rightly ordered life, when we think about a successful life, we're to measure them, our blessings, not on the successes of how other people would measure success, but rather we are to measure them by our contentment and our delight to walk closely with our God. I said in the beginning that the, the goal for you today, the takeaway, was that no matter what your past We are called to rightly worship God and experience his blessings forever. We've looked at how God, uh, that we are to give God appropriate worship. We've been reminded to see God's faithfulness even in our adversity. And lastly, we've been called to measure successful life, not by apparent successes. But let's be honest, it's easy for me to stand up here and say that. It's easy for you to believe that sitting right here in these seats. It's a lot harder when we leave here to go live that out. Especially when sometimes we look at our life and it feels more like failures than it does blessings. But the problem is that often when when everything seems like it's going wrong or when maybe we look at our lives and go, this area of my life is not as what I want it to be. The goal for some of us, the the, the action item for some of us is I just got to try harder. I just got to do better. We glossed over it quickly before, but let's go back quickly to verse 10 of chapter 35. And see what God does in Jacob's life and what he's done for you and me in Christ. This is where God tells Jacob, you're called Jacob, but you're no longer going to be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. This is almost the exact same language as chapter 32. Jacob's name had, had, to the people that knew him, His name had come to mean swindler, had come to mean cheat. He had come to be the person who manipulates other people for his own benefit. So God comes along and reminds him that that's not who he truly is. And why did God have to do that? Because if you look between what happened in verse 30, or chapter 32 to, to chapter 35, Jacob looked a whole lot more like Jacob than he did like Israel. Israel, the one who wrestled with God, the one who was in right relationship with God. 
After God came to him in chapter 32, Jacob started living a whole lot more like Jacob. He abdicated responsibility. He slipped into passivity. He embraced complacency. He's a shadow of who he really wants to be. But here's what God comes and does. He graciously comes alongside of him and he reminds him. In the midst of his failure, in the midst of his sin, your behavior may look like Jacob, but the reality is you are Israel. The fact that your life has come off the rails doesn't change the fact. It doesn't negate the truth that I've changed you from the inside out. You look like Jacob still, but I want to assure you that you are Israel. I don't know how many about you, but I I wrestle with this at times. I mean, Paul writes in in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. It doesn't feel like that a lot of times, at least for me. I'm guessing for some of you. Man, sometimes when I'm defeated, my default is to go back into question. God, is, did what I believe you did in me, did that really take place? Did it, did it really take root? Because I still see a whole lot of Jacob in my life and not so much Israel coming through. I know my name is saint, but my actions scream sinner. What do we do with that? People say, try harder. Others say, like, I'm going to pray more. And I'm going to pray, God, I've been messing up a lot lately. I'm going to pray and I'm going to read and I'm going to study and I'm going to love you all the more this week. And then they feel the guilt when they don't live up to their promise to the Lord. And then in this downward spiral that many Christians find themselves in. Instead of trying to do more, be better, try harder, let's look instead at what God does for Jacob. When he's acting like Jacob, even though he really is Israel. God comes along, he says, you are no longer that, but you are Israel. He remember who you really are. The fact that you have failed in your behavior doesn't negate who I've changed you to be. Friends, if you failed in your behavior, it doesn't change and negate the fact that God has changed who you are if you're in Christ. You are a child of God. Paul writes in Romans 8 that there is now no condemnation, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ. It doesn't matter how many times you've messed up. That is still a true reality for you. We've seen from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. It was never about how good any of these characters were, because they aren't. It was always about how great God is. And the gospel says the same thing for you and me. It's not about your goodness because you don't have it. It's not about your faithfulness because we keep failing. It has and always will be about the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. So even when you were still in your sin, Christ came and died for you. Even if you're in Christ, even in your failures, he still calls you his child. So today, don't leave here beat down. Don't leave here beat down by your sin, determined to do better or try harder before you can be right with God. No, instead, remember his grace. Repent of your sin. Know that you've been purified by Christ's sacrifice and move forward in the life of exclusive worship of the Lord. Friends, that is what the Bible calls a successful life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, God, you are good this morning. You are, you are, your goodness is beyond our comprehension. God, as we study, and we have been studying the, the, the life of Jacob and really Isaac and Abraham before him, 
God, we continue to see failure after failure after failure, yet we continue to see you faithful each and every time. You made promises to Abraham that you would bless not only him, but the entire world through him. And God, we are tracing that story that even along the way, as there is mess up after mess up, that because you have called them, because you have extended your grace to them, God, you still love them and work through them. God, this morning, so many of us in this room probably need to know that and be reminded of that today. God, no matter our backgrounds, no matter what we came in this room with, no matter how many times we've failed this week, that because of Christ, God, you, if we are in Christ, that you look at us and you don't smell the stench of our sin. You instead only see cleaned up, purified, whiter than snow children. And there's not a single thing we can do to undo that. God, this morning there's also bound to be someone in this room this morning that is not yet a child of yours. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them to to measure their success of this life and the hopes that they have in this life, not on the things that this world offers because they are fleeting. Esau had it all for a short time. God, your word teaches us that we only can measure a successful life as one who loves you and who is in right relationship to you. God, this morning we thank you for these stories in your word. That you don't hide from us their failures. Instead, your gospel, the beauty of your gospel shines through even more through their failures. God, we love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus uh, this morning. In his name, amen.